For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. You're listening to Daybreak. Yesterday, following the news that a group of pro-Trump rioters had stormed the U.S. Capitol, I sat down with Princeton politics professor Keith Whittington to talk about the president's role in this attack on the Capitol and what to expect next. As you know, today is a very unique day, to say the least. Uh, We started the day knowing that there were going to be objections to the Electoral College certification process, which historically has often been seen as more ceremonial than anything else, but nonetheless very important. Um, And then today we had pro-Trump protesters turned rioters storming the Capitol building, forcing the meeting to pause. Vice President Pence was evacuated. All other legislators are now um, staying in place in their chambers. So a lot is happening in the Capitol today. So to start off with a rather simple but nonetheless important question, does this have any impact on the election results and could these riots and election challenges delay Biden's inauguration in any way? No, I don't think any of this should delay uh, Biden's inauguration at all. It shouldn't change the uh, outcome of the election. Uh, I thought that was going, that was true going into uh, today. Uh, Clearly the vote counting is going to take a little longer than I thought it was going to take. Um, But eventually we will count the votes. Uh, Biden will still be uh, declared the uh, winner and president-elect and he will still be inaugurated on inauguration. So from your perspective, did President Trump play a role in the events that transpired today? Uh, I, I think you have to think that President Trump uh, bears some responsibility for what happened uh, today. Uh, his rhetoric over certainly the last few weeks, uh, really in many ways the last uh, few months and even years, um, have uh, set up this situation in which uh, there is uh, extensive distrust Um, of uh, the government uh, broadly, distrust of election returns. There is a uh, uh, greater confidence on the part of some uh, violent right-wing groups that uh, Trump has not been very forceful in rejecting um, over time. Um, All that's really created a tinderbox. Um, And then uh, today he goes out and has a rally Um, on the very day in which we're counting votes. He uh, helps uh, call forth Uh, right-wing extremists, as well as his more normal uh, set of supporters and uh, base. And I do think that the set of people who showed up at his rally were a mix of both. Um, But but it's a a troubling situation to be having a rally of that sort um, right outside the Capitol um, uh, today. Um, And then the rhetoric he used at that, as well as rhetoric that other speakers used um, at that event, uh, I think, quite naturally led to this kind of outcome. Um, And so uh, I I think Trump should have foreseen uh, there was a real possibility of this kind of uh, violence breaking out. Um, He should have tempered his rhetoric a long time ago. He still seems very reluctant to temper his rhetoric. So even tonight, uh, he issued a video statement that continues to emphasize the fact that his idea that the uh, election was stolen and does very little um, uh, to discourage um, even the people who are rampaging through the Capitol building to uh, stop uh, what what they're doing. So uh, the president has been extraordinarily unhelpful in this situation, and, and I do think he bears uh, some real responsibility for what we've seen. 
And for our listeners as well, the statement to which you are referring is one where President Trump, he did tell protesters to go home. He did say, let's have peace. But in that same statement, he also repeated the claims of election fraud. He told um, the protesters, we love you. You're very special. So given this context, given this statement that he's released, what more do you think he should be doing right now to reunify the country? Uh, well, reunifying is going to be tough. Um, uh, and, and I think he actually has boxed himself into a corner such that it's difficult for him to be helpful um, at this stage. It is one of the troubling features of his entire presidency um, uh, that even if he were capable of doing it, and all evidence suggests that he is not, um, but even if he were capable of doing it, it's very hard for him to overcome, I think, this extended history of encouraging deep strife and division uh, and, and suddenly turning that around and, and breeding any kind of real unification. It's, at one level, it would have just been helpful if he'd stopped talking. Um, uh, given these events, um, I, I do think he, he really needed to come out and issue a very strong and forceful statement um, that while he um, understands and respects the, the uh, rights of individuals um, uh, to uh, protest peacefully, there's an absolute difference between that and the kind of rioting uh, that we've seen, and that rioting is uh, intolerable, and that offenders uh, will be arrested and prosecuted to the full extent of the law, um, and that people should disperse immediately. Uh, Joe Biden issued a much better statement um, than President Trump uh, did uh, this, this afternoon. Um, unsurprisingly. Um, but there really is not all that much about Biden's statement that Trump himself could could not have done himself, um, even given everything else he has said over time. He's just not a very sincere messenger for these uh, for that kind of message at this point. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone uh, is very inclined to listen, even if he actually uh, put together the right kind of statement and, and issued it. So switching gears a little bit, I've seen a lot of conversation on Twitter and other spaces about the potential to invoke the 25th Amendment, which states that if the vice president and a majority of congressional leaders deem the president unfit to continue his duties in office, they can essentially vote to transfer those powers to the vice president. Do you see this as a necessary or viable path moving forward? If not, is it realistic in any sense? Um, uh, so I don't think it's a viable path for two separate reasons. So one is simply a, a realistic question of, uh, is it likely the majority of the cabinet and the vice president would agree to uh, relieve the president of uh, his responsibilities and transfer those powers temporarily um, to the vice president? Um, I think it remains unlikely that the cabinet would want to do that, um, um, although of course, it's, it is a fast-moving situation, and, and maybe they eventually will come to the conclusion that the president um, uh, should not continue to exercise those, those powers. But even if they did, and politically you could actually get the votes in the cabinet to do it, I do think the 25th Amendment is the wrong vehicle for doing this. It's really designed to deal with um, a president who um, is not just unfit, but in fact unable. Um, to discharge the duties of his office. Um, It's designed to deal with a president uh, who is in a coma, um, uh, for example. Um, A president who is still walking and talking and making bad decisions 
um, is still relative to the 25th Amendment, uh, somebody who can viably exercise the powers of the presidency. Um, I think the correct constitutional provision to use under these circumstances is the impeachment power. Um, um, and I think Congress, uh, I think the House representative should, in fact, immediately impeach the president. And I think the Senate should very quickly uh, convict him and remove him from office. Uh, that could be done uh, very expeditiously. Um, it does not need to take a lot of time. Um, but again, it requires political will. Um, that you need not only a majority of the House to do it, but you need two-thirds of the Senate to agree uh, to uh, convict. Um, and I don't know if there's uh, enough Republican senators at this point who are willing to do it. Um, uh, there might well be. Um, and I think it'd be worth uh, putting them on the record as to whether or not, uh, in their judgment, um, leaving the president in office is less dangerous than uh, removing him. And there are still many senators, as we know, that are supporting President Trump right now in his path to try and overturn the results of the election. Um, two of those are Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Josh Hawley, who've been kind of leading the charge to object the Electoral College. Um, they also today, when this, when these protests were happening, when these riots were happening, they tweeted out um, saying that they wanted to condemn the violence, that they wanted people to go home, that they wanted people to protest peacefully. So do you see them playing a role in the events that transpired today? And what should their role be when Congress does resume? I, I do have to think that, that a number of elected Republicans, as well as conservative uh, figures outside of elective office, have been complicit in uh, stoking these concerns uh, among the electorate, um, a sizable segment um, of Trump supporters, and encouraging them in their doubts and fears about um, the nature of the system, uh, when instead they should have been taking a leadership position and uh, telling people the truth um, about um, where things stand with the election. The fact is that the president simply lost, um, he lost fair and square. If they have concerns about how this election was administered, we can talk about how to fix that in the future. Um, it has no consequences for this particular election. And instead, um, they've danced around, they've blended rhetorical support um, to really baseless allegations of massive um, electoral fraud. Um, and that has helped create these uh, conditions um, under which this, is, this uh, event has taken place. I think both Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz have tried to be fairly careful about how exactly they frame their uh, concerns and objections. Um, they do distinguish themselves in important ways uh, from President Trump, but I think they also have to be conscious about the kind of environment they're operating in and these kinds of careful efforts to distinguish yourself from the president are, are probably more damaging than they are helpful, um, ultimately. So I think at this point, um, if they were wise, um, they would abandon their objections to uh, counting the electoral vote so we can get that over with as quickly as possible without continuing to encourage um, these beliefs about possibility that it could be overturned, um, uh, let alone uh, the beliefs that uh, something um, untoward uh, happened and the election was uh, stolen from uh, President Trump. Um, you know, how far they want to go um, in trying to distance themselves from Trump, I think, remains to be seen. Um, so uh, certainly they've issued statements encouraging people to go home and stop the violence. Um, I assume that they're both uh, trying to reassess exactly how they ought to be positioning themselves relative to the president uh, as they continue thinking about their own presidential aspirations for 2024. They both clearly wanted to uh, make a pitch for uh, Trump's base supporters. If this is what it takes uh, to uh, win that support, um, uh, they may now be having second thoughts about whether or not that's really the right path uh, for them politically. Um, and, and I sincerely hope 
um, that after thinking it through, um, they really decide that they need to choose a different path forward. Um, and that uh, while undoubtedly they would both like to still run for the presidency, uh, that this is not going to be the best way of doing it. I want to pivot slightly to look at the role of the media today sure. and also in previous protest movements happening over the summer, um, throughout the past year. So earlier today, you wrote a tweet. You stated, quote, we really need to stop referring to rioters as protesters. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about this statement? And generally, how do you think the media has handled the current unexpected actions taken by the people you now refer to as rioters? Yeah, I don't think the media has been as good about this as they uh, could be, partially. So that tweet in particular was motivated by the fact that I was just frustrated by both uh, what I was seeing um, on TV, but also uh, tweets from from journalists that I was seeing in which there was just sort of this consistent um, uh, move of, of referring to the people at that point uh, rampaging through the Capitol building as protesters. Um, and it just struck me as uh, wrong as a way of describing what in fact they were. Um, I think it is a way of whitewashing what in fact is happening. Um, so it's inaccurate as a, as a way of, of describing the events. Um, and um, it, as a consequence, uh, protects uh, these people from the condemnation they deserve, um, that we should be more accurate, more straightforward in, in referencing uh, what's going on when we're seeing people uh, carrying stuff out of the when they're looting the Capitol building, and we're still talking about them as protesters. I have seen uh, since then, I think some journalists uh, trying to be a little more a little more careful in uh, referencing the fact that there were people who had been protesting, people who eventually uh, break into the Capitol building, eventually uh, uh, transition from being protesters uh, to being um, uh, rioters. Um, and I think some journalists are starting to uh, be more direct about that, but. But I think this is reflective of a tendency that's been true for the last year and a half or so, where uh, there has been a frequent tendency to want to talk about protesters when, in fact, what people are doing is rioting. Um, and that's been true in various uh, Antifa, uh, left-wing protests uh, in Portland and elsewhere. It was true of some of the Black Lives Matters protests um, that broke out over time. Uh, we've just had a very difficult time talking about the, uh, these situations when we simultaneously have people who are engaged in protests, um, and then we also have people engaged and riots. Um, and I think it's important that we tease those things apart. Um, and so in the context of some of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests over the summer, for example, during the daytime, you would often see protests, and then at nighttime, they would transition into riots. We ought to be capable of talking about those two things as two distinct things um, and not provide uh, cover, uh, basically, for people who want to engage in riots by continuing to refer to them as protesters and mix them up. Uh, with the people who, in fact, were behaving quite reasonably and appropriately um, earlier in the day. Um, uh, the people who were engaged in the rioting should not get credit uh, for what the earlier people were doing uh, when they were engaging uh, in perfectly uh, lawful protests. Thank you for that response. Transitioning now back to this political moment that we're living in. I guess my first question here is, how do you see the results of today? Or not, sorry, not the results of today. How do you see the events of today yeah. um, contributing to the legacy Donald Trump has earned in his last four years in office? Uh, well, I, I think there's no escaping the fact that this is going to lead any discussion of legacies uh, for President Trump. I think there's um, so many controversies swirling around uh, this president that's been a bit of an open question as to uh, what people are reached to first uh, when they want to talk about um, his uh, legacy. I think from a substantive perspective, uh, the pandemic uh, has resulted in so many deaths that undoubtedly how his administration has handled that uh, will be um, highlighted uh, in thinking about 
of the legacy of the of the president. Uh, but really, uh, this kind of unprecedented um, events of today, uh, which really is, I think, one of the darkest days in uh, the history of American democracy for quite some time, uh, will be front and center in talking about the president because the president is. Uh, uh, deeply tied up um, in what uh, ultimately um, happened today. Um, it's, it's not just that it happened on his watch, um, that, that he um, uh, really has been setting this up and encouraging it and, and bear some responsibility for it. And um, uh, I think as a consequence, um, these particular events um, are going to be highlighted as part of his legacy. And what's worse, I think that, that these events are, going, are really um, just the beginning of what is going to uh, be true for quite some time. I think we're going to continue to be an extremely divided nation. I think we're going to continue to see uh, groups that um, are uh, violent um, in their uh, behavior. Uh, and uh, that's not going to go away um, after the inauguration. And so I think Trump's legacy in this regard um, is, a, is a genuine legacy, not just in the sense of this is what we look back and remember him for, um, but also in the sense of this is what we will continue to have to deal with um, even after he leaves the White House. So on this idea of reunification, there's also some other really big news today. That's that John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, both Democrats, were elected to the Senate. Um, and that was confirmed this morning um, and also this afternoon. So yeah. with that in mind, with the Democrats officially now winning the majority in the Senate, in the presidency and in the House, um, what path forward do you see for Joe Biden to take to really try and promote reunification during his time in office? And do you kind of see this as the end of a political era or more of a beginning? Oh, I think it's much early to talk about the end of a political era, really. Uh, maybe one thing that's been true about our politics uh, for really 20 years now um, is that no party's been able to maintain a stable majority. Um, and so even when a party sweeps into office and it looks like there's a lot of momentum behind them, uh, next thing you know, they lose the midterm elections and they lose a chamber of Congress or maybe the entire Congress, um, and we're back to uh, gridlock again, um, and and often a transition to a different party taking over. Um, so we'll have to see how this plays out over the next uh, few years. Um, I think Biden does have an opportunity to try to consolidate um, the electoral gains, um, but um, I think people were surprised by uh, the November election and how close it was and how well Republicans did um, in what was expected to be a very down year for Republicans. Um, and I think that should not be forgotten um, by the Biden administration and Democrats that um, uh, they've still got a task in front of them in, try, in terms of trying to build a stable majority that can hang on to power uh, through the midterm and through the next uh, presidential election um, as well. Um, that path, they have a little more flexibility now than they did before because, because the Democrats will be able to organize uh, the Senate. Um, but the the Senate fundamentally is a super majoritarian body, not as not a simple majoritarian body. Um, there's only so much you can do uh, with 50 plus one um, in in the Senate. So there's going to be a lot of compromises that are going to have to be made. Um, they will be able to control the voting agenda more than they otherwise would have. And that will be helpful in various ways. It will be helpful for some nomination and confirmation battles. But in terms of actually making legislation, uh, I think the Biden administration will still have to be trying to look for how do you carve out a centrist coalition um, that will be supportive um, of uh, more modest reforms. And that's probably just as true uh, today as it looked like it was going to be true a month ago. Well, Professor Whittington, I just want to once again, thank you so much for joining us um, at Daybreak today. We really appreciate your perspective. My pleasure. That's all for Daybreak today. 
If you're interested in hearing more about yesterday's events on Capitol Hill, listen to our full coverage of the event or the full interview with Princeton history professor Sean Wilentz at www.dailyprincetonian.com or wherever you're listening to this episode. Today's episode was produced by Mark Dodici, Hope Perry, Jack Anderson, and myself under the 145th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. Have a wonderful day.